Hey, everybody. Uh, before we get started, I just wanted to say, if you are a fan of the show and get something out of it, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Even something as little as a dollar a month really goes a long way. So thank you. Enjoy the show. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometimes. Hello, welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. Thank you very much for listening today. We are going to be continuing our very slow crawl through Melanie's near-death experience, and this will be the third part in that particular series. And so if you want a refresher on what her experience was, then I recommend you go back and listen to the first episode and maybe the second as well. But I will reference the uh, relevant part of her experience that I'm going to be discussing today, and it's going to focus around the symbolism of the crystal, which featured quite strongly in in her near-death experience. But before I get into that, there was something that I wanted to let you all know about. It's something I've been working on and that I'm very excited to launch, I suppose, or, or to get started with at least. So let me just tell you all a quick story to kind of explain how this project got started and, and what it is. So back in 2018, my grandfather passed away. It was the first loss that my family had gone through. We've been quite lucky to have our, our grandparents all, all throughout our childhood and into adulthood. But uh, in 2018, my poppy passed away. And we all dealt with that in different ways, all the members of my family. But one thing that my mom had told me that I ought to do was to save the voicemails that uh, Poppy had left me. So as I was going through them, an idea came to me of something that I might be able to do as a way of, of processing this loss and, and dealing with the grief. And that was to use these voicemails to make a song. And not just a way that was just sampling the words or something in kind of a spoken word sort of thing, although that would be very interesting, but to actually add melody and harmony to his words. There's something called a vocoder that you can add a synthesizer behind spoken word to actually make it, uh, well, music. And so I started playing around with this idea, and it all, it all came together. So it, I was just like in a flow state, just making this, and it, it came together in such a way that I was really just blown away, and it was a very emotional process for me. I, I cried many times while listening to it, just hearing his voice turn into music. It was very impactful. So I'll play you a quick clip of what that sounded like just so you have an idea. We 
So I finished that about a year after his death. And it's still a pretty rough type of recording. I, I never intended it for any release or anything, and so it's not mastered and so on. But I didn't really know what to do with it. It just was something that I would get emotional every time that I would listen to it. And, it, you know, that was I figured it was just my way of dealing with losing somebody that I loved. But then here in the past, well, few months, really, I've I've started to... S- realize that perhaps that would be something that other people might be interested in, that other people might want to have a way of immortalizing a certain message of somebody, not only somebody that they've lost, a a loved one that's passed on, but just anybody, you know, uh, your mom or your dad or some kind of birthday gift or an anniversary, you know. There's so many applications that that go beyond just just grieving, but you know, to hear someone's voice as music is is an amazing thing, especially with something as mundane and and looked over as voicemails. And there's a lot of tenderness and and some messages that people leave. And so I started to take some voicemails that I had in my inbox and and see what I could make of them. And I'll play you a few examples of, like, from my mom and my dad and my brother. So as you can probably tell, I have a particular style that I stick to. I call it electronic impressionism. And so I, I can't really do a rock opera or a country song or a rap song. It's not really in my wheelhouse. But I do try to tailor the, the tone and the feeling of the song to the message and the person. Like with my mom, it was more heartfelt and warm. And with my dad, it was more kind of lighthearted and fun. And that's a... Uh, an interesting creative challenge to try and capture the essence of a particular message and one that I find really engaging and really rewarding to do. So if this is something that interests you or, or something that would interest someone you know, 
All you have to do is send me an email at voicemailheartstrings at gmail.com and send me three things. The voicemail you want made into music, a picture of the person who left the voicemail, and then just a description of your relationship with that person. Like I was talking about to try and capture what, what the feeling is there. Will take me up to about two weeks to compose, mix, and master the song. And then once I send it back to you, I will send a PayPal link for the price of $125. So, like I said, if this is something that interests you, uh, please feel free to, to do that, to send me an email. I will uh, post the link to my website, voicemailheartstrings.com in the description of this episode, and you can click around and check that out, listen to those examples in their full length. And yeah, I just wanted to share that, and I hope you choose to turn a voicemail message that's just sitting there in your inbox, turn that into a work of art that you can cherish forever. So after that brief message, now it is time to get into the main topic today, which is discussing the symbolism of crystals and frost and how it appears in Melanie's near-death experience. Just to reiterate what we're doing here, this has been quite a drawn-out sort of analysis of Melanie's experience. and We've gone quite slow and quite deep into some of the material. For instance, the last episode we did, part two, was exclusively on the color purple and its symbolism and how it appeared in Melanie's experience and what, how it's appeared in history and culture across various societies. And there was a significant overlap of this idea of purple being associated with royalty, with divinity, with uh, the unknown, with ambiguity. And... Certainly, that resonates quite well with how it appeared in Melanie's NDE. Her soul, her essence, her being was the color purple. And so, we've been taking our sweet time going through this, but it's for a particular purpose. And the purpose is to fully flesh out and understand the process of looking at symbolic material, the process of amplification, which we talked about to a great degree in the first episode, how we approach certain inner phenomena of dreams, spiritual experiences, visions, what have you, and how we can draw certain conclusions and, and make certain parallels based on references to other instances of a particular symbolic image and how it appears in human culture and what that might mean about what it means to be human, about the human experience, about something that we all can resonate with in a certain way if it's, if it's deep enough. Because as we should be well aware of by now, through all the episodes that we've been through, that... Everybody sees something different, and there's a great deal of overlap between these various experiences and certain motifs and patterns that reappear 
but not exclusively. And so we're trying to investigate certain images and symbols that might we might share in common and be able to make sense of that and and draw some connection to what we might experience in our own lives because the proof of any of this that that we're going to dive into like i've said before the proof is going to be when each of us sees it within ourselves in our own dreams or or nde or whatever happens to us throughout our lives. We are trying to learn a symbolic language that appears differently in each case, but there seems to be an underlying structure or set of patterns that connect vastly different inner experiences of NDEs. And this factor, whatever it is that organizes these particular experiences, some might call it God, some might call it the universe, some might not call it anything, but whatever that factor is, it changes clothes. It puts on different forms and different guises and appears one way for somebody and appears in a different way for someone else. But there are certain certain connections that we can draw on and perhaps though that underlying structure is something that we can uncover a bit and dive into and part of the reason i am going into such depth with this is because like i've i've said in the previous episodes that melanie in regards to her experience seemed to be quite confused about what she was seeing and i think we all feel like that sometimes with things that we see inside of ourselves and in the world. And so I think that's worthy of, of taking a little extra time to, to uncover. And particularly as we are going to see with this episode and, and that we might have seen a little bit in the previous episode as well, these images and these symbols, they, they're quite wide-ranging. They, they're not they're not isolated. They're, they're not contained. They kind of spill over into other domains of religion, spiritual ideas, culture. They they're, they're, don't have borders. They kind of, they, they're permeable. They, they drift and they interpenetrate into all these different, well, other symbols to begin with and, and ideas that surround them. And so it can be quite infinite in a way. And I think that's something we'll, we'll get a taste of, especially when we're talking about something as ubiquitous as the image of a crystal and how it's appeared in history and religion and ideas that surround it up until, up into new age ideas regarding crystal healing and so on and so forth. That's something that even Melanie touches on with this idea of Reiki and that's something we'll we'll dive into a little bit to try and understand and talk about. But I guess a good place to start before we, I don't know, get into a lot of the history and, and ideas surrounding crystals, amplifying the image of a crystal, I think it would be a good idea to at least discuss how it appears in Melanie's case. 
So let me repeat the line from Melanie's experience that we're going to be discussing, at least in its first appearance. The essence of me was reduced to a simple thread of purple frost about 15 centimeters long. Okay. So Melanie goes on to describe in her experience how this thread of purple frost lifted out of her body and went into outer space and was surrounded by other purple frosts, as she calls them, uh, presumably their other souls, other spirits. And so in the entire experience, the human soul or the human essence is portrayed as a thread of purple frost or a, thre- a thread of crystals. And she describes some of the variations of the hues. And so the, the color is not exclusively purple, but ranges from a blue and, and kind of here and there. So it's not, it's not uh, uniform, but there's variations to it. For instance, she says that the color of the strings varied in tone from pale to deep purple. And I could see a gigantic circle of other essences, all in shades of purple, pink, and blue. So here this particular image of the crystals or the frosts is the shape of the human soul in Melanie's experience. Now, as we've discussed before, and I don't remember how far back we talked about this, but there was a particular passage that I read from Marie-Louise von Franz's book on alchemy, in which she described how the form that a being or an essence takes in a psychological experience of a dream or a, you know, vision hallucination, any spiritually transformative experience, the form it takes can give us some idea as to its nature or how it's being presented. So, if somebody sees God as an old man, right, the classic idea of God sitting on a cloud as an old man with a long beard and a staff and that sort of thing, well, that is a more humanistic form of the divine. You can talk to an old man, right? You can relate to an old man. And so God as an old man is a way that is more human and warm and more familiar. But as we have seen throughout all the experiences we've talked about, that's not how God always appears or how a a divine being always appears. There can be quite a lot of variation. In fact, a lot of times the divinity can appear in a form that is non-human or even just almost natural. So God as an ocean or a great ocean of divinity or a great light or an eye, it's like... Well, those are not quite as, I don't know, relational. You perhaps could still communicate with them, but it's, it's probably a different sort of experience than an elderly grandfather sort of image of God. And so in this case, where we're not necessarily talking about 
God, but the image of the human soul, it does not have a human warm sort of formation. It's not a, a human image that the soul takes. It's something objective. It's something material, which is a very interesting idea. And the fact that she relates it to Frost, perhaps that that gives us some idea of, of this nature that's underlying this particular case, that it, perhaps it lacks some of the normal human warmth that that we come to expect in, in our relationships and dealing with one another, but something that is perhaps a little farther removed from the human warm-blooded sort of sphere, but something that is actually portrayed by nature, by crystals, by the earth, by, by something objective. And so perhaps this is just a different way of expressing a side of divinity that, like I said, are, is contrasted with the more warm, meeting loved ones, human formation of an of a experience. But here we have something that's more natural, that, that is more objective, that, that doesn't necessarily have that same relational aspect, but perhaps is something that is perhaps a little more mysterious that has is more i don't want to say ineffable but perhaps is harder to put into words because it's so far from the human sphere if that makes sense and so we can look at how divinity how souls god the sacred manifests itself and that can give us some idea to the character in which it's being uh, interacted with in a given situation. And in this case, it is the soul as that objective part that it's almost, it has intimations of, of I don't know, panpsychism. The idea that there is, that there is consciousness or a dim awareness or, or psyche living in, in dead matter. And so that, that's a very deep rabbit hole that I won't dive into right now. And we've actually touched a little bit on when we were discussing the chapter from uh, von Franz's uh, book, Psyche and Matter, which she postulates that if, well, obviously there's something about our material bodies that contain psyche and perhaps psyche has a material aspect to it too, that perhaps they both have latent, latent parts of them which at a certain level overlap and, and conjoin. And there are a lot of mythological ideas that surround that. And that might be something that we touch on as we start to look at the image of the crystal and how it's appeared in various religious ideologies uh, for mankind. But still, this is so... We're just looking at how this particular experience chose to portray itself to Melanie or how it chose to portray its nature. And like I've said before, in the case of when we were talking about purple and the significance, perhaps 
I mean, I can only assume that this is based on who Melanie is as a person and her own, I don't know, relation to to divinity, to life, to others, and all of that stuff is very personal and it's not something that we know. But we can look at, like I've said, the the underlying patterns and compare them to to material that we've discussed before and, and material that we can look at in people's religious beliefs and spiritual beliefs. And we can hopefully find things that are of interest to all of mankind that we all can partake in. So although it in this case, takes a very objective, somewhat cold form taking place in outer space and consisting of frost crystals. It still has some of the hallmarks that we see in other near-death experiences that take a much more human form. In this case, she talks about how it was profoundly peaceful and how it was so healing for her, especially at such a difficult time for what she was going through, going through treatment for cancer. And so, with that in mind, let's start to probe into what, what we can learn about this image of the crystal and how mankind has thought about it and related to it throughout time. So we'll start by just having a overall kind of synopsis of what the crystal is, its physical form, what it is materially, what, what is the definition of a crystal, and perhaps where does the word crystal come from? A crystal, or crystalline solid, is a solid material whose constituents, such as atoms, molecules, or ions, are arranged in a highly ordered microscopic structure, forming a crystal lattice that extends in all directions. In addition, macroscopic single crystals are usually identifiable by their geometrical shape, consisting of flat faces with specific characteristic orientations. The scientific study of crystals and crystal formation is known as crystallography. The process of crystal formation via mechanisms of crystal growth is called crystallization or solidification. The word crystal derives from the ancient Greek word krustalos, meaning both ice and rock crystal, and kruos, icy cold frost. Examples of large crystals include snowflakes, diamonds, and table salt. Okay, so I don't want to nerd out on this too much, but having a basic knowledge of what a crystal is and some of the details regarding what qualifies a certain material as a crystal, I think will be useful when we start to talk about why this particular image and symbol appears so frequently in religious ideas, spiritual traditions, and even in modern-day religious experiences in the form of an NDE. So we have to discuss kind of what it is and and what it is in nature, so we can figure out why it might be playing some role in a particular, let's say, sacred or 
divine context of, of someone's experience. So from what I gather from what I just read, what kind of defines the crystal is its lattice structure, a uh, highly ordered, arranged formation of atoms or molecules or ions in whatever crystal substance we're talking about. But it's the regularity and the orderedness of the structure, the atomic or molecular structure that I guess defines a certain material or substance as a crystal. And then I also thought it was pretty interesting that the etymology of the word crystal from Greek directly references the idea of ice and frost, and that's what it means. And I suppose it makes sense because on a day-to-day -day basis, that is probably our most frequent encounter with crystals in, in the wild or in nature. And so I, I suppose that kind of makes sense. But again, to come back to Melanie's experience, the distinction between crystals and frost is a little vague. And I think there's probably a good reason for that. As I've mentioned many times before and almost every NDE that I've read, the use of language to capture and describe the actual experience is difficult. People say there aren't words to describe it. And so if there's a little ambiguity in terms of the language used to try to visualize or capture what happened, whether that's more like frost or more like crystals, I think that that's probably just her doing her best to try to to visualize or, or, or bring an image to mind of what she experienced um, because she kind of refers to both. She talks, calls the soul or essence the purple frost and refers to other beings in the main part of her experience around in outer space as purple frosts, plural. Um, but at the same time, she talks about purple crystals and, and their relation to Reiki. And that's something that we'll get into. But although we're going to be talking about crystals and trying to amplify that material throughout the rest of the episode, before we depart into that territory, I thought it might be worthwhile to at least try and drill down a little bit on this ambiguity between crystal and frost. Because, like I said, Melanie uses the word frost a lot. And while that just might be a way of trying to describe it, as I said, there also might be certain associations that we can draw and certain perhaps ideas that we can offer based on what is implied by the word frost and what are some of the amplifications of that particular word that she has used. And I think the most important one to point out is coldness, which is fairly obvious is coming along with the idea of frost and the idea of an ice crystal as opposed to a regular crystal as such. And this is something that I had kind of touched on earlier in, in distinguishing between a human form of the divine and perhaps a more abstract natural form of the divine as they appear in inner experiences. But the idea presented by the idea of a human soul being represented by an ice crystal is fairly, I don't know, counterintuitive 
and interesting for that. Because what it might suggest is that while we usually have notions of human life and our souls and our beings having warmth, you know, having energy, that sort of thing, perhaps there is an aspect to us which is being presented to Melanie and her experience that is the opposite of that. There, perhaps there is a cold, hard, objective reality to us that we don't usually tend to think of in terms of ideas about the soul and spirit and so on. But it, it just raises this other half of the equation that we tend not to think of. And that other half of the equation is cold, lifeless, inert matter. And like I said, we've, we've kind of touched on this before in one of the previous episodes, talking about von Franz's psyche and matter. But I think it is very interesting that the coldness associated with frost would also, also signify a, a sort of a different aspect to what we're usually used to when we're thinking about perhaps the elements of our very being, you know, and perhaps it, it serves as a sort of bridge for us to have a different relation to, to matter or a different relationship with things that we think of as lifeless or dead or inorganic. And maybe this is something that we need to used to supplement our usual views of life and the soul and that sort of thing. I mean, even if we take the strictly scientific view of the beginnings of life, it's some kind of autopoetic process by which certain compounds and amino acids and chemicals uh, found ways to structure themselves together in a self-replicating sort of way. And I don't know if that's the best description of, of what the current understanding of the be- origins of life is, but, but certainly that occurred in some way. So I think the image of the human soul being represented by an ice crystal has some of these associations of of there being something cold and inert about the soul or the human essence. And perhaps this has some overlap with with the idea of matter itself containing some panpsychic sort of element that uh, like Jung and von Franz hypothesized that psyche and matter might be two sides of the same coin, and at perhaps at the deepest level they might intermingle or be indistinguishable. And perhaps another association might be that ice or frost would itself be water that is frozen. And water, usually we think of as flowing, as associated with movement and dynamics, and certainly that has a lot to do with the process of life and cycles of precipitation and rivers flowing and all sorts of movement. And in that sense, we might think of it as water itself, as sort of like time. I think 
Aristotle's definition of time was something like time is the motion of number in reference to before or after, something like that. But the idea of motion is definitely associated with time. And so what would a frost or a ice crystal represent in, in those terms? Well, it would represent something that is eternal, that is not moving. And certainly those are ideas that we tend to associate with ideas of the afterlife, of heaven, of the divine as being eternal, unchanging, that sort of thing. And so the idea of an ice crystal or frost representing a part of the human soul has that aspect of eternality to it. It's not moving. It's not flowing. It's solid. It's, it's still. And that idea of uh, the eternal nature of, I don't know, the beyond is something that is often juxtaposed with the time-bound aspect of earthly life that we're used to, the schedules and clocks and all that stuff. So it's, it's kind of a, a contrast, which is very interesting. And the last point that I wanted to bring up about Melanie's specific use of the word frost in her experience is that frost and ice crystals and uh, snowflakes are frequent examples of, of frequently used examples of fractals. And we had talked in greater depth about fractals back in Navina's fear-death experience. And so if you want to sort of hear more about that, I encourage you to check that episode out. But just to briefly summarize, the fractals are self-similar and sort of infinite in scale that no matter how much you zoom out or zoom in, the pattern in the fractal repeats itself. And so they have a sort of infiniteness or inexhaustibility to them. And because of that, they are uh, in between dimensions. So fractals can have a dimension of 2.25 or or 1.77 or something. We tend to think of dimensions as being whole numbers, like we're in 3D right now, but fractals have an in-betweenness. And what I had related in the episode about Navina was that that perhaps there is an in-betweenness to the human soul. Um, I think that certainly lines up quite well with what we discussed about the color purple and its symbolism. And not only that, but perhaps there's kind of an infiniteness in, in meaning that is inexhaustible that there's no bottom to, and that certainly seems to be the case with uh, about talking about symbols in general, that they, they do have a, a depth which can't be reached, and, and there's kind of a... There's no... No end to the scales that you can zoom in. I'm sure, as as you can probably tell by the amount of time I spend talking about various images and symbols, but I I think it's worthwhile to at least try to talk around some of these the ideas associated with whatever these symbolic images that are produced by this factor which structures NDEs inside inside of somebody. Okay, so now that we have discussed the scientific definition of a crystal and its etymology, 
and some of the ideas and associations surrounding uh, Frost and its use in, in Melanie's case, uh, I'd like to set up what we're going to be doing for the rest of the episode. And this is going to be to try to further amplify this image of the crystal. So we're going to start off by trying to figure out what is mankind's relationship with crystals. How are they used in cultural, spiritual, religious contexts? Uh, what are the ideas that, that surround them? And, and try to figure out, okay, how does this appear and what can we learn from that? And from there... Uh, I'd like to finish off by talking about, well, what is it about the crystal that perhaps intimates something deeper to us? If, if it's being used in particular religious and sacred contexts, what is it about the, I don't know, the structure or the, or, or the nature of the crystal that, that captures our, our ideas and imagination and and projections surrounding certain religious or spiritual beliefs. And so to start that process off, I am going to be reading from a bit of the Wikipedia page on crystals in reference to some of their cultural uses and, and what mankind has thought about them and their properties and how uh, start to give some examples of that relationship. Precious stones have been thought of as objects that can aid in healing, and a practice known as lapidary medicine, by a variety of cultures. The Hopi Native Americans of Arizona use quartz crystals to assist in diagnosing illnesses. Both Pliny the Elder and Galen claimed that certain crystals had medicinal properties. In Europe, the belief in the healing power of crystals, and in particular crystal amulets, persisted into the Middle Ages. The alleged medicinal properties of precious stones, as well as other powers they were believed to hold, were collected in texts known as lapidaries, which remained popular in medieval and early modern Europe until the 17th century. Okay, so here we're getting into some examples of mankind's relation to crystals and how we've used them, how we've thought about them, and uh, we've hit upon this idea of crystal healing and their use in medicine and that sort of thing. Now, I'll just give a disclaimer right off the bat. I never thought I'd be talking about crystals and crystal healing like on a podcast. And I don't, I don't believe that it is doing what people think it is doing when people use it. But we will get into that as we go along. At the same time, I'm not one to dismiss something uh, just in a knee-jerk sort of fashion and have my uh, sense of scientific rigor start to bristle or something like at, at the thought of talking about crystal healing. I mean, obviously, it's something that gets... Well, there's lots of people uh, that say lots of things about it and so on and so forth, but that's something I, I'd like to try and understand and not just dismiss outright. And I think that there's going to be something very useful in, in diving into that. So one thing to point out here is that the examples that were brought up are quite separated by time and space. 
the Hopi Native Americans using quartz crystals to help in healing, and also in medieval Europe. Like, so what that suggests is that there is something universal in what the universal in the meaning of, of the crystal in, in relation to perhaps our psychology that intimates something to us and perhaps lends its use in a medicinal sort of context. And that's actually something that I didn't really know a lot about was this idea of lapidaries, these books of uh, containing information about crystals and how they can be used and to heal what malady and in what way and that sort of thing. And so I did a little more research on it, and this is what I found. Lapidaries listed the medical benefits of particular gems, with the most common method of medical application being wearing the stone on one's person in a jewelry setting, for example, in a ring. Open back settings allowing direct contact between skin and stone were encouraged. Otherwise, the stone might simply be held against the skin. Other forms of application included ointments containing ground stones, or taking the stone internally in ground form, often as a part of a cocktail of several different herbal, mineral, and other ingredients. This seems to have become especially often mentioned in the 16th and 17th centuries. A school of lapidaries expounded the symbolism of gems mentioned in the Bible, especially two sets of precious and semi-precious stones listed there. The first of these were the twelve jewels, an engraved gem form on the priestly breastplate described in the book of Exodus, and the second the twelve stones mentioned in the book of Revelation as forming the foundation stones of the new Jerusalem. Eight of these are the same, or were in the Vulgate translation. The late Anglo-Saxon Old English lapidary took the latter group as its subject. The symbolism of these sets had been explored by theologians since Saints Jerome and Augustine. Various other schemes were developed, linking stones to particular saints, classes of angels, and other areas of Christianity. Okay, so I think it's probably a good thing to point out that we're going to be getting into some of this sort of strange territory of talking about crystals and healing and that sort of thing. But that's not just for just for kicks. Uh, I want to do that because what Melanie's experience was, essentially, she sort of described it as a healing process. And the fact that her essence appeared as a sort of crystal... I think it's worth taking the time to try to tease that apart and see what we can learn about that. And and so what I'm going to try and do is sort of follow a similar pattern to the last episode that we did, talking about the color purple. And that is starting with some of the older, uh, let's say, Western Judeo-Christian ideas surrounding crystals and healing and that sort of thing and work our way up to the present day and what the new age ideas surrounding new uh, crystal healing are and then also bring in some of the uh, other cultural ideas surrounding crystals such as perhaps in the east 
and in, in this idea of Reiki that we're going to discuss because that was something that Melanie brought up. So we're going to try to circle our way up and out of history into the present and gradually getting further afield into other cultures. So just one thing to note about what we discussed in the lapidaries and this idea of crystals, the it seems like the primary method of use or action was to wear a crystal or stone in open-backed jewelry so that it can be resting against the skin or have some kind of direct contact with the skin. Now what that suggests is that whatever effect was intended is probably purely psychological uh, or a placebo, uh, for lack of a better term. And that's something that I want to try to keep in mind as we go along here, that a lot of mankind's interactions with crystals and ideas surrounding them when in a healing context are could be described as perhaps placebo and it's sort of a dirty dirty word in a way it's it's something we kind of look down upon like oh we couldn't find any actual real scientific reason for something happening and so it was the placebo effect it's sort of a way to sweep something under the rug, like, oh, crystal healing, that's just the placebo effect. But if you stop and think about it, it's pretty, it's, it is an effect. Like, I don't, I don't think it should be so callously thrown aside. And the implications of it are quite profound, I think. It's the psyche affecting the body or the subjective subjective idea of, of what's going on actually affecting the physical body. Now, I, I will, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a researcher, I don't know the extent to which it actually works in medical circumstances, and from what I understand, it's not going to cure something like cancer or, or reverse the size of a tumor or something, but it's going to affect the patient's own uh, experience of things like pain or subjective well-being. And so that can make a huge difference, especially in certain circumstances, I'm sure. And I'm not sure, but I think it would be reasonable to think that for the vast majority of human history up until, let's say, I don't know, the past 500 years, that most of the healing and medicine that was going on was probably placebo-based. Like uh, back in college, I was an anthropology major, and I took a class on shamanism. I remember hearing about one shamanic healing ritual or a shaman helping out a patient, and he pretended to take an object or a dart or a rock or something out of the patient, like physically extracting something that was causing pain. Now, he wasn't actually doing it. He's not like reaching into their body, but he pretended to pull an object out of the body. And that process of physicalizing a subjective feeling, of physicalizing, acting out this metaphor of pulling an object out of the body that is causing pain, actually supposedly helped the patient. And now that's all, all placebo, at least in that particular case. But I think from 
probably for most of our history, that was fairly common, that since we didn't know very much about, you know, chemistry and biology and medicine and all that sort of things, people had to do what they could. And that the placebo effect and the trust in the doctor or the priest or the shaman, whatever person had the authority, that actually made a difference in people's, I guess, subjective health. And that's sort of, that's an unconscious projection that's bestowed upon the healer that the the sick person is is granting them this part of their psychology that to see it actually physically enacted actually starts the process of of the psyche presumably affecting the body and like i said to what degree that actually has physical effects i don't know but certainly subjective effects of pain and tolerance of pain and that sort of thing. And maybe it only works if you can't help but believe in it, consciously or unconsciously. The reason I'm going into this is because we're going to be looking at the same phenomena, except instead of bestowing a projection onto a healer or a shaman, we're going to be looking at how it has been put on a an object or a stone or a crystal and trying to understand that relationship and why the crystal might represent something within us that has the power to perhaps enact healing or at least the perception of healing okay so we've talked about lapidaries and just a general sense of crystals being used to heal and what that mechanism might be. But I thought it might be worthwhile to go in depth and talk about maybe a specific gemstone, crystal, precious stone that was used in this regard. Now, the one we're going to talk about was uh, part of this priestly breastplate that was mentioned in the Bible in Exodus, uh, 12 stones representing the different uh, tribes of Israel. And the one that we're going to talk about is the carbuncle. Okay, so the reason I'm doing this is so we can start to see how, what properties people associated with crystals, what they connected them with, what ideas surrounded them. And so this will start to give us a better picture of why a crystal might appear in a near-death experience, such as in Melanie's case. A carbuncle is any red gemstone, most often a red garnet. A carbuncle can also be a stone with magical properties, usually capable of providing its own illumination to an otherwise dark interior. This is encountered in a number of medieval texts. In a French romance of A.D. 1150, a fictionalized Charlemagne finds that his bedchamber in Emperor Hugo's palace at Constantinople has such lighting. An English translation from the Welsh version of A.D. 1200 says, quote, Within it was a golden column, and for light a carbuncle stone in its end, making it always day when the day was gone. End quote. In the initial letter ostensibly written by the mythical Prester John 
and sent to European heads of state in 1165. The priest king claims that carbuncles regularly serve as indoor lighting. Quote, Indeed, at either end of the palace, above the roof ridge, are two golden apples, and in each of these are two carbuncles, so that the gold shines in the day and the carbuncles sparkle at night. End quote. In another of Prester John's architectural wonders, there is, quote, a carbuncle of such size as a large amphora, by which the palace is illuminated as the world is illuminated by the sun. End quote. Okay, so what particular associations can we make with this red crystal, the carbuncle? Seems to be a catch-all for a lot of different red gemstones, but... Well, it's associated with a magical property of being able to illuminate itself in dark places. And it's also associated with mythical kings and heroes. So, obviously, we're not dealing with something literal here. As far as I know, there aren't any stones that can illuminate themselves, like Lord of the Rings or something. So, what I really want to emphasize is that we're dealing with something symbolic or psychological and perhaps there is a meaning there that can give us some insight into ourselves and so that's what i really want to focus on here i'm still just trying to give examples but i want us to keep that in mind because towards the end of the episode i, I want to discuss what that means for us so what does it mean if a stone is giving off its own light. What does it mean if a stone is associated with mythical kings and heroes? And one of these figures that was mentioned was Prester John. Now, from what I can tell from what I've read, Prester John was this idea, this myth of a Christian king that was ruling out in Asia in the East and that medieval people thought was you know, had great wonders and amazing treasures and that sort of thing. So it was this whole myth surrounding this figure. And there are various, perhaps, historical bases for uh, bits of the myth, like certain figures here and there that might have contributed to this idea of a Christian king out in the East. But I think it's important to point out that this figure of Prester John was more of a myth than an actual historical person. Although the article mentions that there was a letter, supposed letter written by Prester John, I think it's the consensus is that lots of people often used mythical figures as pseudonyms for writing letters, and whoever the particular author of this letter was, was familiar with a lot of different stories that sort of contributed and surrounded the Prester John myth. One of the particular stories I actually came across in the current book that I'm reading, The Grail Legend by Emma Jung, and it was the romances of Alexander the Great. A lot of these just different stories and tales surrounding the adventures of the conqueror Alexander the Great in, in the East. So these were thought to be written by Pseudo-Callisthenes in probably around AD 200, so about a thousand years before 
the letter, supposed letter of Prester John to these European kings. And I'm just going to read you an excerpt of this because I, I want I want you to see the staying power of this idea. Something, an idea that lasts a thousand years is not something to be tossed aside lightly or, you know, just thrown away as, I don't know, poetic, uh, poetic license, I suppose. I, I think it means something, and that's why I wanted to, to read it. So this is coming from Emma Jung's book on the Grail. Just for some context, uh, this story involves Alexander discovering an island and finding a city of the sun at the top of the island and exploring that and going into a temple. Now, I'm just going to read a, a sentence or two from this actual story, and then I'm going to read just a bit of how Emma Jung relates that to the Grail legend, which developed about a thousand years later. In the center of the temple, a transparent golden crown was hanging from a golden chain. A precious stone which lit the whole temple took the place of a fire. Now here is how she relates that to the Grail legend. Furthermore, when the text tells us that, quote, a precious stone which lit the whole temple took the place of a fire, this recalls the great hall of the Grail castle, where a fire burned continually before the couch of the Grail king and where the grail shed such a brilliance that the light of the candles was dimmed. It also reminds us that in Wolfram, the grail itself is a stone. Okay, so we've gotten a little far afield, as can happen, but I want you to notice that we're dealing with the same basic idea or pattern that was in the story of Alexander the Great that we saw pop up in the letter of Prester John, this idea of a precious stone illuminating the entire space on its own. And then the bit from Emma Jung related that to the, the legend of the Grail, that, that in a version of the Grail legend by uh, Wolfram von Eschenbach, the Grail is also thought of as a stone, and in the legend, it illuminates the entire room. So, I, I want to, if, if we can take away, if we can distill out two patterns from all of that, which I know is a lot, but I, I want to emphasize. So, it's associated with its own illumination, of lighting up a room on its own, of light coming out of a particular crystal or precious stone. And then it's also associated with mythical figures, mythical beings of kings or even historical figures such as Alexander the Great that become mythologized as heroes of antiquity. And I will also point out that uh, when we were talking about uh, the lapidaries, of, there were theologians who wanted to associate particular crystals or gemstones with uh, hierarchies of angels or saints. And that is the same pattern at play that we have two associations that I want you to keep in mind because they're going to be very important as we try to uh, find out what they mean here later on in the episode. And that is illumination and associated with mythical figures. Okay. So now that we have those two amplifications in our toolkit of what a crystal might mean or what it's associated with, 
I want to continue our examination by going into certain ideas about crystals in regards to medieval alchemy, which I've mentioned a couple times before, but kind of served as an undercurrent of weird ideas about matter and God and spirituality uh, that occurred beneath the rigid order of the uh, church in the medieval era. So to get a sampling of alchemical ideas about crystals, I'm going to reference uh, Carl Jung's massive work called Mysterium Conjunctionis, which was his exploration into alchemy and how it related to psychology and psychoanalysis. So I'm just going to read a little bit from that, and what it will do is pull in a lot of different alchemical thinkers' ideas about crystals and how it related to their work and what they associated it with. And I think we'll see quite, quite an overlap with some of the things that we've discussed before. The lapis sapphireus, or sapphirinus, is derived from Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22 and 26, where the firmament above the living creature was like a terrible crystal and a sapphire stone, also chapter 10, verse 1, and from Exodus chapter 24, verse 10, quote, And they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet as it were a work of sapphire stone, and as the heaven when clear, end quote. In alchemy, our gold is, quote, crystalline. The treasure of the philosophers is, quote, a certain glassy heaven, like crystal, and ductile like gold, end quote. The tincture of gold is, quote, transparent as crystal, fragile as glass. The book of the cave of treasures says that Adam's body, quote, shone like a light of a crystal. The crystal, quote, which appears equally pure within and without, refers in ecclesiastical language to the, quote, unimpaired purity of the virgin. The throne in Ezekiel's vision, says Gregory the Great, is rightly likened to the sapphire, quote, for this stone has the color of air. He compares Christ to the crystal in a way that served as a model for the language and ideas of the alchemists. Okay, so one of the great things about reading Jung is that he was so diverse and erudite in his scholarship, and he had access to a lot of old manuscripts and alchemical texts that he painstakingly read through, and his, his work is kind of like a one-stop shop that compiles uh, a lot of historical data on a particular image. And this case is no exception. Here he brings in all of these different examples of the uh, iconography or the symbolism of, of the crystal. And while his jumping off point was alchemy, I think it's pretty clear that it's, it's, we're dealing with something that has a greater religious sort of depth to it. And that's what he saw in the practice of alchemy as well. And he related that to psychology. So, uh, I would like to point out again two of those particular associations that we had already discussed, uh, being associated with giving off light, or, or the stone or the crystal emanating light, which there was a quote in there that uh, 
the body of Adam, uh, the first man radiated light like a crystal. And then there was also relation to a mythological or uh, heroic figure. In this case, a divine figure of Christ. And I would also put Adam in that category as well. That, that one quote about the body of Adam radiating like a crystal that kind of has both of the associations in one. And here we also brought in some some other associations that perhaps we've touched on in ways so far, but the uh, fact that in Ezekiel, the verses in Ezekiel, the firmament or heaven was likened to a crystal. And that is very interesting, particularly when we often, well, it's not uncommon to see certain uh, structures or uh, cities or buildings in near-death experiences that are usually described as being made of crystal. And so that's a very interesting thing. Also, in connection with the, the association of a divine or mythological person, uh, Jung references ecclesiastical thought that in reference to, let's say, the idea of purity, the crystal is associated with the Virgin Mary. So that... We're bringing in a feminine element as well, but that's the same uh, pattern that crystals being associated with divine persons. And then finally, there were a couple quotations which liken a crystal or a crystalline form to the final goal of the alchemists, which was the philosopher's stone. And here you get into a lot of murky waters, a lot of very unclear imagery and stuff. This It gets very kind of hard to suss out what's what, because it seems like the alchemists used a lot of different words and names to refer to the same thing. For instance, they called the stone the lapis. They called it the stone that is not a stone. They called it the philosopher's stone. It was the elixir of life. Uh, it was thought to be the, the the classical idea of alchemists trying to turn matter into gold, like lead into gold, that sort of thing. could also be thought of as trying to liberate the deity that is uh, trapped in matter. And so all of these different ideas, are, are they get kind of hazy. And in fact, Jung like, <laughs> has written whole books trying to trying to sort out the various imagery that they that they just focused on on the goal of their work or the stone and then you could also uh, find relations of the stone to Christ or or to Adam the first man that sort of thing and so it gets very very uh, dark and mysterious and interesting but in summary I guess, the stone can be thought of as a spiritual goal or spiritual path. And that's something that we'll touch on in Chinese alchemy and ideas of the Dharma of Buddhism and Hinduism as well. And so before we move on, I just want to kind of have a quick summary of some of the things that, some of the associations that we've learned regarding crystals and their form. So one is associated with myth, mythical divine figures. Another is shining light, emanating light. 
another would be with heaven or a place beyond in terms of that quote from Ezekiel. And then I think we can also throw in the idea of the crystal as the the goal of one's life's work, the attainment of a certain, perhaps let's say, enlightenment or a spiritual oneness, the uh, the spiritual goal of a lifetime, let's say, and we get some of that those ideas from these uh, alchemical ideas and its association with the stone. But before we head out to the east and then on to some modern New Age ideas surrounding crystal crystals and crystal healing, as unpalatable as that is for me to do, uh, first I wanted to bring in another common association with crystals, and that is that of divination. And so I was reading a very short but interesting book by my fave, uh, Marie-Louise von Franz, and it was called On Divination and Synchronicity, and she's looking at divination techniques as uh, ways that mankind has developed to perhaps interact with one's own psyche in a way that would hopefully give some clue into the future or into perhaps some absolute knowledge that man is not privy to. And as a very early form of uh, almost a scientific approach to try to understand or, or provide order over the chaos of, of nature and life. And, and so in this book, she mentions certain ideas about crystals, crystal gazing, uh, crystal balls, with the classic sort of trope of magicians and, and sorcerers looking into crystal balls. And so I wanted to share just a quick passage regarding what that idea might have been and, and perhaps what the crystal has to do with it. There is a higher form of oracle where numbers or a random pattern with a certain order are used. For instance, the oldest oracle form in China was to put fire under the shell of a tortoise and then see how it cracks. Naturally, it cracks along certain lines and from that they read the fate. The pattern on the back of a tortoise is hardly a random pattern. It is relatively ordered in squares, to a certain extent like a matrix, but not quite accurately, not in exact lines. It is between order and disorder. The same applies to the crystal. The crystal has a very definite order, but the light effects are chaotic and change constantly. You need only turn the crystal to get completely different light effects. If you look at a diamond, you will see the same thing, for the light is in different iridescent colors. So it is an admixture of random pattern plus order. Okay, so here we start to get into the idea of interaction with the crystal between man and the crystal brings some kind of beyond human power or beyond human knowledge. And I think that's going to be a very, very important idea as we go, go along and as we look at ideas of healing coming from crystals and so on and so forth, that this idea that somehow this relation between the crystal and the person 
can uh, allow access to something that is beyond us. Okay. And what perhaps the mechanism of that is, we will talk about as we, uh, towards the end of the episode, where we try to understand what the meaning is, what what is the crystal doing that would uh, give rise to these sorts of ideas. Because as I've made pretty clear so far, I don't think the actual scientific, <laughs> uh, there's no actual scientific basis for these sort of ideas. Not in, let's say, the traditional sense, but perhaps in a psychological sense there is. Okay, so although this is going to be uh, taxing, perhaps on those of us who are more scientifically objective, materialist inclined, uh, it's going to be very important that we keep this idea of, of some kind of uh, transpersonal, transhuman power that, that happens in interaction with, let's say, these crystals or perhaps holistic practices as such that we can call it placebo-like, uh, we can call it reading into something or, or wishing something to happen, you know, I'm, that's, that's fine. But I want to try and approach it as carefully and as, as, well, objectively as I can to see if we can understand if there is some meaning beneath it. And it perhaps might not be the same meaning that people who believe in it purport it to be. But this is going to be very important as we move along and get into some of the uh, Eastern ideas regarding crystals and, uh, and Reiki. So this is very important to bring up because Reiki is one of Melanie's own associations that she found when researching crystals. And it resonated with her. And I think it, it is in line with some of the things that we've been talking about. Although, from what I can tell, Reiki does not feature crystals as part of the practice. I think there are lots of similarities to the idea of crystal healing, as we'll get into later. So, I'm just going to read you the passage from Melanie's NDE, where she discusses Reiki, and then we'll talk about what Reiki is, and perhaps if there's some overlap um, some shared meanings. I haven't had any issues like this in the last couple of months, but I am having to deal with feeling strangely connected with the universe. I've never been interested in crystals or anything like that, and this experience made me search on Google. I found Reiki, and the woman had purple crystals on her website. Then I discovered Reiki is about the universe, etc., I was astonished that my experience had any resonance with anyone else. To me, it seemed so baffling and weird because it was not a part of my world at all, but it seems to have found me. Okay, so if any of you all are annoyed with me for the amount of time I've taken and the amount of depth I've gone into, I apologize. But this paragraph kind of indicates why I'm doing it. First of all, she's said she's kind of baffled by her experience and, and is surprised that it has any resonance with anyone at all. And that resonance, that is what I'm trying to fully flesh out, that it has resonance with all of us. 
and it has resonance throughout history, throughout different cultures, that these ideas are, are widespread and they mean a lot to people. And so that's why I want to take the time, since we have it, I mean, <laughs> in quarantine and lockdown, we got to do something right, but to take the time to really try to understand the 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 depths to which this resonates how one person's experience can reflect ideas and meanings and and things that have inspired people for ages and and to really see what each of us can take away from that 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 what can resonate with each of us that perhaps we can see within ourselves and so I personally really empathize with her sentiment because she's like, I'm not a crystal person. You know, I'm not into crystals or anything. And I have the, she has this amazing experience and then is trying to figure out, okay, what, what are the, these things all about? And she has a bit of a synchronicity. It sounds like And when she starts searching, she finds this idea of Reiki and comes across purple crystals, which as we know, was the sort of basis of her experience. But I myself had to do some research on Reiki. I didn't know what it was. And so I'm going to read you a little bit from the Wikipedia so we can get up to speed on on what it is and perhaps make some connections. Reiki is a form of alternative medicine called energy healing. Reiki practitioners use a technique called palm healing, or hands-on healing, through which a, quote, universal energy is said to be transferred through the palms of the practitioner to the patient in order to encourage emotional or physical healing. Reiki is a pseudoscience and is used as an illustrative example of pseudoscience in scholarly texts and academic journal articles. It is based on chi, which practitioners say is a universal life force, although there is no empirical evidence that such life force exists. Clinical research does not show Reiki to be effective as a treatment for any medical condition, including cancer, diabetic neuropathy, or anxiety and depression. Therefore, it should not replace conventional medical treatment. There is no proof of the effectiveness of Reiki therapy compared to placebo. Studies reporting positive effects have had methodological flaws. Developed in Japan in 1922 by Mikao Asui, it has been adapted into varying cultural traditions around the world. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, the English alternative medicine word Reiki is etymologically from Japanese Reiki, quote, mysterious atmosphere, miraculous sign, first recorded in A.D. 1001, combining ray, quote, soul, spirit, and ki, quote, vital energy. The Sino-Japanese reading of Chinese linki, quote, numinous atmosphere. The earliest recorded English usage dates to 1975. It compounds the words ray, meaning spirit, miraculous, divine, and ki, Gas, vital energy, breath of life, consciousness. Key is additionally defined as, quote, Spirits, one's feelings, mood, frame of mind, temperament, temper, disposition, one's nature, character, mind to do something, 
intention, will, care, attention, precaution. Some Reiki translation equivalents from Japanese English dictionaries are, quote, feeling of mystery and an atmosphere of mystery and an ethereal atmosphere that prevails in the sacred precincts of a shrine. A spiritual divine presence. Besides the usual Sino-Japanese pronunciation Reiki, these kanji have an alternative Japanese reading, namely Ryogi, meaning demon, ghost, especially in spirit possession. Chinese Linki was first recorded in the circa 320 BC inward training section of the Guanzi, describing early Taoist meditation techniques. Quote, that mysterious vital energy within the mind. One moment it arrives, the next it departs. So fine there is nothing within it, so vast there is nothing outside of it. We lose it because of the harm caused by mental agitation. End quote. Okay. So, as you can probably tell, there were no crystals mentioned in that description. Reiki seems to be a hands-on sort of energy healing, which doesn't have anything to do with crystals or use of crystals and that sort of thing. But I went to the trouble of reading the full sort of description and including the etymology because I think that will give us a good clue as to what might actually be going on in this practice. I don't think it's probably all that different from the shamanic type of healing that I mentioned earlier in the episode, where the practitioner and the patient are, are trying to help somebody feel better and a certain psychological process is probably taking place, a placebo-like process. And in fact, in the beginning of the article, that is what they emphasize, that it's a pseudoscience. It's not based on any real sort of data. It, it is indistinguishable from the placebo effect. But, as I mentioned before, the placebo effect is a thing. What is that? What's going on there? So the people who do find that it's effective, what could possibly underlie that, that uh, phenomenon? And so the reason that I went to such lengths to describe the various meanings and associations of the actual etymology of the word Reiki, of Re and Ki, is I think that it fairly clearly shows that what we're dealing with is something that has to do with the feeling. It's a feeling of mystery. It's an ethereal atmosphere. It's the feeling of a divine presence. Right? There's all of these, the spirits, one's feelings, mood, frame of mind, temperament, this whole long list, which just screams to me that it is something having to do with the psyche, something psychological. And that doesn't mean it's not real. Psyche is real. I mean, if you're listening to this, you're listening to it through, presumably, your your unconscious <laughs> uh, sensory functions in, in, in a atmosphere of, of your psychology. And so 
I think this is the the link that we can start to understand, perhaps how some of these images and some of these, frankly, you know, pseudo scientific fringe science sort of ideas. How can we take them seriously in a way? Well, they're not doing what people say they're doing. They're not actually transferring energy. I mean, scientifically or or on a physical, physically testable and quantifiable basis. But it is doing something psychologically, at least for the people who are, I don't know, uh, willing to go into it in a way that might make it effective. And that's not everybody. But I think the unverifiable but subjectively attested to reality of the psyche for each individual is the point where these things start to meet, where Reiki functions similarly to crystal healing, which might constitute a placebo effect. It comes down to each individual and the fact that we cannot get out of our own psychology. And we actually attempt to do that when doing science. Strip away all the feelings, all the emotions, all the intuit, well, maybe not intuitions, but, but something has to be physically verifiable, quantifiable, be able to be tested, that sort of thing. And that's fantastic. And that is a human achievement above almost all else. But we still are left with this fact of an, an irrational fact of our emotions, of our <laughs> mood swings, of our humanness. And that is, is also a reality, although it is only verifiable by each one of us. And that causes all sorts of problems, as, as you could tell. You can declare dreams to be meaningless firings of neurons while you're asleep, but that won't stop someone from waking up in the middle of the night in tears after having a profound dream, which could be one of the most profound moments of their life. And the same thing goes for NDEs. So we're dealing with something that is subjective and irrational and not scientifically verifiable, besides in the rubric of a placebo effect. So let's maybe find some more examples of Im images of crystals and how they're interacted with and perhaps some of the Eastern cultures and Eastern thought. And then we can get into some of these more modern ideas of new age ideas of like crystal healing and that sort of thing, which I roll my eyes at, but I think represents something psychologically and that should be taken seriously. All right. So I was doing a bit of reading on Chinese Taoistic alchemy, which was similar to Western alchemy in certain ways, but also had a lot of its own sort of unique features. And one feature is that while gold was very important, there was another crystalline mineral that was just as important, it seems, in the alchemical process for the Chinese, and that was cinnabar. And so I'm going to read a little bit about that particular crystal and how it was used, and we can discuss it. Gold and cinnabar, 
Jindan, were the most sought-after substances to manipulate and ingest, believed to have longevity and thus able to elongate the life of the consumer. Cinnabar is a mineral with a reddish-brown color and is the most common source of mercury in nature. The significance of its red color and difficulty with which it was refined implied to alchemists its connection with the search for immortality. The color was significant to symbolic belief as well, red being considered in Chinese culture to be the, quote, zenith of the color representing the sun, fire, royalty, and energy, end quote. Cinnabar could also be roasted, which produced a liquid form of silver known as quicksilver, now known as mercury. This substance was ingested, but could also be combined with sulfur and burned again to return it to its natural form of cinnabar, the solid seen as the yang to the quicksilver's yin. In China, gold was quite rare, so it was usually imported from the other surrounding countries. However, cinnabar could be refined in the mountains of Sichuan and Hunan provinces in central China. Okay, so the first thing that I want to point out after what we just read is the danger of mixing up a psychological reality and physical reality. That's a very wide-ranging phenomenon that we do all the time, and God knows the body count that we have suffered as a result of that confusion. I mean, anywhere from Salem witch trials to Jonestown to these alchemists consuming mercury and gold because they think it will give them a longer life. Okay, it's very dangerous to mix up something real in one's head with outer reality. But we can always say that, well, they didn't know any better, that sort of thing. They don't know what we know now, and that's true. But what I think is more useful is to ask ourselves, what is so evocative and so, I don't know, uh, meaningful about gold, cinnabar, and mercury that would make someone want to eat it, that would make somebody think that if they ate it, it would extend their life, which it will not, as far as I, I know. In fact, I think it will shorten it. And I think that is what we need to be asking ourselves. It's not like, oh, they're so dumb, like, yeah, they're eating minerals and stuff. It's more like, what do these substances capture in the human psyche that would compel someone to want to put them in their body so as to give them a longer life? Particularly here when we're talking about cinnabar, which is crystalline in form. And that is something that we're trying to explore and discover with this episode. So I think we have another association that we can add to our already growing list. And that is longevity or uh, uh, everlasting life, perhaps. Immortality, maybe. So just to recap sort of what we've got already, we've got illumination, We've got association with divine mythological figures. We've got the uh, spiritual work of a lifetime, maybe enlightenment. And let's add in this idea of, of perhaps uh, everlasting life or immortality. 
So all of these are the web that we're spinning around this idea of a crystal, this form of the crystal, the symbol, and say, what, what can we say about it? What does it refer to inside of us? And by expanding our view out to incorporate some East Asian views on this particular image, we are only getting closer to the idea that this might be something that is a human universal or that has some universal validity or that is archetypal. And that being said, I just want to point out that this is not an exhaustive list, that the examples that I've used thus far of the appearance of crystals in various religions and cultures, there's tons more out there. This is just a small survey, and it would probably take a mini-series to fully lay out all of the different times that a crystal or diamond or gemstone pops up in, in cultural practices. But I'm only trying to get enough so we start to see the meaning that might underlie the image. And with that in mind, now I want to bring in an example from Buddhist and Hindu thought. And this example is concerning the use of a diamond in reference to this word Vajra, which is sort of a weapon and also a spiritual ideal or practice. And I'm going to read a little bit about it from the Wikipedia article. A Vajra, or Dorje in Tibetan, is a ritual weapon symbolizing the properties of a diamond, indestructibility, and a thunderbolt, irresistible force, and is the Sanskrit word having both meanings. The Vajra is a club with a ribbed spherical head. The ribs may meet in a ball-shaped top, or they may separate and end in sharp points with which to stab. The Vajra is the weapon of the Indian Vedic rain and thunder deity, Indra, and is used symbolically by the Dharma traditions of Buddhism, Jainism, and Hinduism, often to represent firmness of spirit and spiritual power. In Buddhism, the Vajra is the symbol of Vajrayana, one of the three major branches of Buddhism. Vajrayana is translated as, quote, thunderbolt way, or, quote, diamond way, and can imply the thunderbolt experience of Buddhist enlightenment, or Bodhi. It also implies indestructibility, just as diamonds are harder than other gemstones. Okay, so I think this word Vajra has a bit of a union of opposites within it. On the one hand, it is a powerful weapon. On the other hand, it is used as sort of a spiritual principle or, or spiritual path. On one hand, it represents an irresistible force of lightning, and on the other, it represents an immovable, indestructible object of a diamond. And this appearance of the diamond is what we're going to be focusing on. From what we read, it sounds like the indestructibility of the diamond is an aspect that is associated with enlightenment, which lines up quite well with what we had discussed before in Western examples of this, medieval examples. And while doing some further research, I found the review of a book that actually linked this idea of, of the Vajra uh, with the result of alchemical processes that kind of 
brought together our two examples in the East so far, the idea of alchemy in the, uh, in the East and also the uh, process of enlightenment. And so I want to read a little bit about that so we can tie these two ideas together. So this is just going to be a little excerpt from a review of a book called The Alchemical Body by the author David Gordon White. Quote, As the title of his book suggests, White is especially interested in the transubstantiated alchemical body, which is a central theme of both medieval tantra and alchemy. The practitioners of these two esoteric disciplines share a common quest for personal immortality in a divinized somatic vehicle, called Divyadeha, Siddhadeha, Vajradeha, or Svarnadeha. There is a great deal of conceptual overlap between these disciplines, and Tantra Yoga, including Hatha Yoga, becomes more intelligible by understanding it as a form of spiritual alchemy. For the Siddhas, the human body is a great laboratory in which lead, the ordinary psychophysical state, is transmuted into gold, the extraordinary condition of liberation while being embodied. As the Rasa Arnava, an 11th century scripture, declares, quote, As in the case of metal, so in the case of the body. End quote. Thus, at the core of Tantra Yoga, as also at the heart of alchemy, is the process known as Bhuta Shuddhi, or, quote, purification of the elements. But whereas alchemy uses external means of accomplishing this, Tantra Yoga understands Bhutashuddhi as an inner meditative process, without which the mysterious serpent energy, Kundalini Shakti, cannot be mobilized successfully. The awakening of the serpent power is certainly essential to the blissful liberation aspired to by the Tantric adepts. End quote. So reading this article was very useful because it seemed to uh, draw a direct line between the idea of yoga and spiritual practice towards enlightenment and also alchemy, and that they shared a common goal, which was immortality, which was the development of an alchemical body. And what I want to point out, particularly for our purposes in this episode, is that one of the names for this um, immortal body was Vajradeha, which I believe is translated as the diamond body. And so here we have this imagery being expressly used in such a way that sort of brings together the different ideas that, <laughs> that we've discussed so far of Taoist alchemy in which the alchemists were eating crystals to try to elongate their lives, or perhaps become immortal, if, if we can be so bold. And then how this idea of the Vajra, which was a diamond thunderbolt weapon, also doubled as a spiritual principle in Buddhism that was used in yoga as a, a path towards enlightenment. And so you have this externalized psychological thing going on in alchemy, and an internalized psychological thing going on in, uh, well, tantric yoga and, and perhaps other schools as well. But both of which are using the crystal or precious stone as an image 
that is starting to circle around this core of meaning which we've been trying to lay out in this episode. These various amplifications and associations, illumination of enlightenment, of association with divine figures. In this case, it would be uh, the Buddha and various bodhisattvas, and with immortality, something eternal, indestructible. And I think it's very important for us to discuss all of these examples and explore them fully if we're trying to understand the grammar of a near-death experience, the words in this symbolic language that an NDE tends to speak in. Okay, so there's another theme that has been weaving its way through the various examples that we've discussed so far, and that is the idea of energy. And so far it's taken a couple different forms, like uh, talking about light coming off of crystals, or the idea of a thunderbolt with Vajra and the diamond, or Kundalini serpent energy, which we discussed in this last passage, or Chi. And when we were talking about the etymology of the word Reiki, the Ki or Chi, as I don't quite know the pronunciation, but that idea of, of some kind of energy in the body. So with this idea of energy, I think people tend to get into trouble when they make the claim that it is a physical, measurable sort of energy that we're used to out in the, in the world, as opposed to perhaps framing it as a psychic energy or a psychological energy. And Jung actually had a term for the latter case. He called it libido. And so there would be a, a certain content in the unconscious that would appear in someone's dream or experience and it would have a high emotional charge to it. It would have cause a great deal of emotion in the person. And so he, he had this idea of, of libido, a certain economy of psychic energy that would regulate itself and appear and disappear accordingly. And I think this is probably a better way of approaching some of these ideas rather than just dismissing them as pseudoscience, which is actually probably right because they're not scientific in the sense that they're not verifiable or measurable, but as a way of actually engaging with, let's say, the differences in dynamics and certain inner experiences, because let's, I mean, from all that we've discussed in all the previous episodes, near-death experiences are highly uh, emotional, highly have a high degree of, let's say, energy or libido, you know, highly transformative. And so being able to compare that with uh, perhaps a normal everyday state of consciousness, it's good to have a, a sort of term to discuss the differences. And so it can be quite a squirrely concept, especially when it's used loosely. And I think having a stricter, more narrow sense of the word in terms of a psychological energy or energy within the field of experience, in the field of consciousness and the unconscious, I think that can be much more useful, especially as we get into modern examples of the use of crystals such as in crystal healing. 
So with all that we've discussed so far, from the lapidaries of medieval Europe and earlier to the Taoist alchemy and even Hopi Native American tribes using crystals and healing, it's not surprising that this idea is still with us, but in a new form. And it's a form that is highly associated with the New Age movement and certain New Age spiritual uh, ideas, I suppose. And it's actually something I didn't know a whole lot about. And so I'm going to read a little bit from the Wikipedia on crystal healing uh, to bring us up to speed. In the English-speaking world, crystal healing is heavily associated with the New Age spiritual movement. Quote, the middle-class New Age healing activity par excellence. In contrast with other forms of complementary and alternative medicine, participants in crystal healing view the practice as, quote, individuated, i.e., dependent on extreme personalization and creative expression. Practitioners of crystal healing purport that certain physical properties, e.g., shape, color, and markings, determine the ailments that the stone can heal. Lists of such links are published in commonly distributed texts. Paradoxically, practitioners also, quote, hold the view that crystals have no intrinsic qualities, but that instead, their quality changes according to both participants. After selecting the stones by color or their believed metaphysical qualities, they place them on parts of the body. Color selection and placement of stones are done according to concepts of grounding, chakras, or energy grids. Okay, so although my knee-jerk response to this is to roll my eyes, I'm going to resist the temptation because, like I've said, I think any idea that has lasted thousands of years, let's say, in various forms, is worthy of being taken seriously, even though if the mechanism of what's happening, of, of what is actually going on, might not be what the practitioners say it is. But clearly, if we're still doing this in 2020, there might be something beneath the surface that perhaps we can get at. And just by coincidence, while I've been researching crystals and, uh, well, this whole episode, I actually met someone and was talking to someone who used crystals. And the process that she described, because I didn't know anything about it, like how do you actually use them? Are there different kinds? What's the process? All that. It was very fascinating for me to learn about because it reflected a lot of psychological ideas coming out of alchemy and certain operations that you do with the crystals that, uh, to get the benefit from using them. And what she described to me was that there, like this article had just mentioned, that there are different crystals for different things, like perhaps a rose-colored crystal would be uh, geared towards romantic issues or, or something like that and that one is supposed to wash the crystal in salt water to purify it 
and then also to let it sit out in the moonlight to charge it up. And while you're performing these operations, you're supposed to think on whatever issue or problem or thing that you want to work on. And then perhaps you can sit in meditation with them, hold on to them, just keep them in your room as sort of a reminder of that. And maybe it works. Maybe the person feels more themselves after doing this or feels better about a certain situation that they're going through. And so we're in this weird space where it's like the practitioner of crystal healing is getting some benefit and it's not coming from (laughs) what they think it is. And then the scientist who's critiquing crystal healing as pseudoscience and all that is dismissing the benefit altogether because the mechanism that is underlying all of this is bunk. It's not real. But maybe there's a third category, and that is what we are trying to talk about here today. The third category is that of the psyche, something being real psychologically, of the crystal representing something within us. That is an image that, that has certain ideas surrounding it that we've been trying to lay out by looking at all these various examples. And perhaps by interacting with a crystal, one gets to interact with these ideas in one's own psyche if they are projected onto the actual physical object. And so what are some of these ideas? and What do, what do they mean in us? Well, so far we've seen illumination, we've seen enlightenment, we've seen divine mythical figures, we've seen uh, everlasting life. And all of these are floating around this central symbol of the crystal. And now I want to talk about what that means psychologically. What does that mean in us? And I think the best place to start, really, is going back to how it appeared in Melanie's NDE, because that is what we are trying to get at, after all. And how it appeared in her near-death experience is as the image of her very essence, or her soul. And I think now we can start to tie together these various associations that we've uh, discussed and how they link up with this idea of of our own soul and, and what it might mean what it might mean as expressed by the symbolic language of the crystal perhaps our very essence our very seat of our being can be linked with some of these ideas of illumination of enlightenment, of divine beings, of everlasting life. I think this is as close as we can come to an objective view of subjective phenomena, which is why I'm taking the time to go through it so so tediously. 
And that is also why I rely so heavily on ideas coming from psychology. Because psyche does mean soul in its root definition. And so I want to bring in some ideas from things I've read of Jung to try and really drive home this connection, this, this understanding that we might be able to grasp of what these things mean in our own psyches. So the first excerpt that I'm going to read from Jung is coming from a work called Modern Psychology, Volume 3. And I think this is not only going to bring up another example of how crystals were used in ancient cultures, but I'm hoping that this will start to solidify some of this understanding around perhaps what is actually going on under all of these practices and give us some, some clearer idea of what we might be interacting with. Quote, This turned out to be possible, for I discovered that if one concentrates enough attention on the contents of the unconscious, they begin to move and various peculiar phenomena take place. This was the technique of the old Egyptians. They believed in crystal gazing. There was nothing in the crystal itself. They actually perceived the unconscious background, which was animated by their attentive gaze. Many old magicians in all parts of the world make use of this technique and employ all kinds of shining objects, water, jewels, and even buttons for the purpose. The Egyptian priests gave their clients beautiful blue crystals in which to perceive these background processes. The purpose was divination and also the healing of the ill of the soul and even of the body. The old Egyptians knew that the unconscious background was absolutely necessary for these purposes. End quote. Okay, so here we have yet another example of the use of crystals in a cultural practice, namely that of the ancient Egyptians for the purposes of healing and divination, which I think lines up quite well with some of the other examples that we've discussed. But what I really want to emphasize here is, is sort of this interaction that I've been hinting at throughout the episode of what is this relationship between man and crystal and all of its effects? Well, maybe beneath the surface, it's really the interaction between man and his own psyche. It's unconscious. And maybe there are certain properties of the crystal, its shape or its geometric orderedness, something that catches this particular projection that allows us access to our own psyche in a projected form. And maybe these attributes are things that can clue us into the nature of our own being or the nature of what we emerged out of, the nature of what we return into when we die and why an NDE might use a crystal to express itself, as in Melanie's case. And so I want to explore what some of these properties might be and also try to bring in some of these associations that we've been gathering along the way in our exploration of this material. 
And I found a really good passage that I think accomplishes some of that. And this is coming from a book called Projection and Recollection in Jungian Psychology by Marie-Louise von Franz. And I'm hoping that this will really narrow in on what we've been trying to get at throughout this episode. So this will be quite a long reading, and there's going to be a lot in it, including discussion of uh, reflection, uh, shiny objects, uh, mathematical structures, crystals, and so I just kind of want to lay the groundwork here, not only to talk about the symbol of the crystal, but like Jung mentioned in the previous reading we did, that for some reason that mankind has always had a sort of fascination with glittering, shiny objects, and she gets into what perhaps might be the meaning psychologically behind that, and in addition to discussing what the symbol of the crystal might mean for us. Thus, even the phenomenon of momentary flashes of consciousness was originally experienced as projected onto an outer object. Whoever remembers these momentary flashes of consciousness from his own early childhood will know that they are always connected with strongly emotional states. This emotion is at its peak at the moment of the, quote, flash, and usually subsides at the same time. It is as if the brief light of consciousness broke up the stifling, obsessive emotion. Objects that reflect can therefore drive away spirits. The reflection calms the affect or excited state. That is why when Perseus killed Medusa, the sight of whom turned people into stone, he did not look directly at her, but instead took his aim with the help of a mirror. He could thereby protect himself from being overcome by emotion. Rigidity is caused by an excess of strong emotion, as is shown in the catatonia of schizophrenics. Perhaps it is worthwhile in this connection to take a look at the concept of reflection in physics. All light, as we know, is produced by the motion of electrons, either spontaneously, as when an electron changes its energy level in the atom, or when it is set in motion through the impact of a photon. In the second case, reflection and transmission result. Neither of these events can take place, however, unless the electron has a certain freedom of motion and is not too firmly held in its atom. Normally, when light hits the electrons held at a certain energy level in a single atom, the energy of the light can be absorbed by the energy of the electron. If, however, the atoms are held tightly together in a kind of crystalline lattice structure, it can happen that electrons are able to move about freely inside the lattice and are no longer bound to one atom. In this situation, the electron does not absorb the light energy, but radiates it back. Viewed as a physical phenomenon, therefore, reflection depends on the presence of certain atomic lattice structures. The fact of the matter is that although the larger groupings, the atoms, are mathematically held together more tightly and with more force than usual, certain electrons have precisely for this reason more freedom of motion. Miraculously, as it would seem, the possibility of reflection in the unconscious area of the psyche is connected with an unknown factor that reveals itself on the threshold of consciousness in dreams and in spontaneous fantasies, as a crystalline mathematical structure 
namely, the symbol of the mandala. That psychic center which is represented by the mandala itself, and which as we know Jung has called the self, is, when it represents reflected wholeness, very often symbolized by mathematical structures, mostly of quaternary subdivisions, and is often illustrated by the symbol of the crystal. For primordial man, the phenomenon of mirrors and mirroring had the quality of a miracle. For him, the mirrored image was a reality in its own right. Spiegel, the German word for mirror, is cognate with the Latin word speculum, and goes back to Old High German skukar, shadow holder, from skuo, shadow, and kar, vessel. In Old Indian, a mirror was thought of as self-seer, or a seer of doppelgangers. The mirrored image was regarded as shadow, or as doppelganger, that is, as an image of the soul, and the mirror, therefore, possessed great magical significance. It was an instrument for becoming objectively conscious of one's own soul by means of reflection, in the literal sense of the word. Mercia Eliad has collected abundant documentation on the part played by shiny or glittering objects as protection against psychic dissolution by evil spirits. In his book on shamanism, wherein he discusses the initiation rites of shamans and medicine men of innumerable peoples, he describes a ritual in which the novices' entrails are symbolically extracted, cleaned, and replaced by small shiny stones and glittering chips that give him magic powers over the spirits. Crystals themselves often have the same function of subservient spirits. They mirror events on earth or reveal what is going on in the soul of the sick person. In many places, mirrors are used as a defense against the evil eye of both human beings and of spirits, because it was thought that mirrors throw the harmful rays back upon their source. In Spain, in Tripoli, and generally in China, mirrors are used for this purpose. A similar purpose is served by fear masks, that is, revoltingly evil-looking distorted faces that show the demon his own image, from which he flees in terror. Reflecting objects have thus had, from time immemorial, a numinous significance for human beings. The oldest experience of a reflecting object may well have been that of the surface of water. Okay, so there's a lot in this passage, and there's several things that I want to touch on, so I will do my best to try and bring it all together. The first thing is just the general discussion of the idea of reflection and how it might be linked to our uh, long-standing love of shiny, glittering objects, you know, across time and uh, different cultures around the world. Like the, uh, the example that she brought up of the shamanic ritual of symbolically removing someone's intestines and replacing them with stones, with, with shiny, reflecting stones. I, I thought that was... That was that was amazing, and and it linked up quite well with the example I'd mentioned earlier of that I had learned about in college of the shamanic practice of of enacting a something psychological and in an enacted sort of metaphorical way that actually has an effect on the patient. 
And in this case, it, it sort of lines up with another thing that we talked about, the idea coming from uh, the lapidaries and in Taoistic Chinese alchemy, the idea that someone would want to perhaps swallow or ingest certain minerals or crystals or mercury to have some benefits, which are purely psychological uh, because the physical benefits are probably very detrimental. But in the example brought up by von Franz in the shamanic setting, it is purely enacted and symbolic and no actual intestines were removed or replaced, which is good. But in other cases, as we had talked about before, people actually ingested things. So this idea of having something shiny or something crystalline or something reflective inside of the body, well, that's to integrate it, right? It's to, you are what you eat, as we say. And so the symbolism of that is very telling and how meaningful it is. And, and this is something that this passage really hit on quite well, I think. It's this idea of reflection as as the process of becoming conscious. It's to see one's self, to see one's own image. That's perhaps why we have always been enamored of things that reflect or, or twinkle or, or shine. And the whole discussion of mirrors, I thought, was, was fascinating. That, you know, it can be used to ward off evil spirits, to show them their own image, or, or to become conscious of oneself one's own soul. And speaking of reflection of the soul, von Franz makes an extended analogy with physics and the actual physics of reflection in atoms and uses that as a sort of jumping off point into what might be going on in the psyche. As far as I know, physics are correct in how she lays it out, but really it's more of a metaphor and I don't want to confuse anybody into thinking that it's the same thing but really what she wants to emphasize is that what Jung and others noticed in the dreams of their patients and in examining people's religious experiences across history is that highly charged religious images were often presented in a mandala latticed sort of form they were almost like images of god that people experienced and there are examples of mandalas in christianity there's examples of mandalas in buddhism and hinduism i mean they're highly meaningful and and how they appear and so what jung hypothesized on the back of that was that perhaps the totality of the psyche, which he called the self, expresses itself in certain, uh, well, mathematical, symmetrical, lattice-like formations or images. And perhaps that is the reason that we associate the psyche, the self, the soul, with crystals perhaps due to their nature, their highly ordered arrangements of atoms and molecules, the lattice structure within them, their symmetrical aspects, the geometric sort of shapes that they make, the fact that they 
sort of grow out of nature almost organically. Perhaps those things allow the crystal to catch that projection of the totality of the psyche, of the soul. And Jung pointed out that the experience of that, the experience of the self, is indistinguishable from the experience of God or divinity. So just to try and summarize some of this, because I know it's a lot, across history and various religions and cultures across time and up into the dreams of modern-day people, the sacred or the divine has often been represented in art, in people's depictions, in people's reporting of their own dreams, as having certain symmetrical, lattice-like mandala forms. And perhaps that structure or symmetry is something that unconsciously gets evoked by crystals or crystalline formations. So the crystal becomes the carrier of the image of one's own soul, which is how it's presented in Melanie's near-death experience. And hence you have people that want to wear a crystal up against their skin to heal themselves, or to swallow, eat, ingest cinnabar in order to give themselves longevity or immortality. This is how we get all this strange stuff that we've been gathering up, that we've been talking about, and all of the weird ideas that surround it. If you go back and listen to all the examples I brought up, and then keep in mind that people are interacting with their own soul, perhaps, in projected form, it starts to make a lot more sense. But the language that we get into here starts to get a little tricky. Is the crystal one's own soul? Is it one's own psyche? Is it God? I mean, we had uh, the association with divine figures such as Christ and Buddha and the Virgin Mary and with mythological figures of Prester John and, and uh, a heroic Alexander the Great. So that is why Jung used the term the self as the totality of the psyche and often pointed out that it was indistinguishable from a God image. So it's kind of a category to catch all of these different representations of the totality of divinity. It's sort of a a bucket into which you can put all of these various figures because as we've seen in all of the different NDEs that we've discussed, the divine can take many different forms. Just to put a a slightly uh, dramatic uh, point on that and a certain example I have, I've just read a NDE that was one of the more recent ones on the nderf.org website in which a uh, younger guy... I think he was in high school. He was having a near-death experience, and uh, 
was met by Kid Cudi, who's a rapper, who's still alive. <laughs> so the role that's usually played by an angel or Christ or a being of light in this young man's experience was played by a rapper who presumably he had a lot of respect for and looked up to. So, should I worship Kid Cudi? Should I revoke any other, you know, religious beliefs I have? I don't think so. I think we need a category beneath the different clothes that divinity can wear. This category can be, it doesn't matter if you call it the self, as Jung did, or something else, but something to to underlie all of these various forms that it can take. It can take the form of a crystal as one's own essence. It can take the form of Christ or Buddha or a, an angel. And obviously they all have different cultural meanings and personal meanings to individuals. And that's going to account for a lot of what somebody sees in a in their experience because it seems to be tailored towards the individual. But perhaps whether you see Christ or a crystal, there are underlying similarities that we can point to that can give us a clue to the true nature of what's underlying inner phenomena. And like I've said, that won't be able to be proved in a laboratory, but perhaps it can be proved to each of us individually when we experience it. So to give a big summary of the different forms that the self can take, the totality of the psyche, including crystalline form. I wanted to read a couple paragraphs from the first book that I ever read by Jung. And in these couple paragraphs, he is going to list and bring together all of these different symbols that often represent the self or the psyche. There is going to be numerical symbolism, which we've touched on in previous episodes. But there's also going to be a lot of just different images, and many of which we have seen in NDEs, and that perhaps you and I will see in our dreams as well. So this is coming from Ion. Quote, I would like to illustrate this parallelism by summarizing the symbols previously discussed. For this purpose, we must first of all review the facts that led psychologists to conjecture an archetype of wholeness, i.e. the self. These are, in the first place, dreams and visions. In the second place, products of active imagination in which symbols of wholeness appear. The most important of these are geometrical structures containing elements of the circle and quaternity, namely, Circular and spherical forms on the one hand, which can be represented either purely geometrically 
or as objects, and on the other hand, quadratic figures divided into four or in the form of a cross. They can also be four objects or persons related to one another in meaning or by the way they are arranged. Eight as a multiple of four has the same significance. A special variant of the quaternity motif is the dilemma of three plus one. Twelve as three times four seems to belong here as a solution of the dilemma and as a symbol of wholeness, i.e. zodiac, year. Three can be regarded as a relative totality, since it usually represents either a spiritual totality that is a product of thought, like the trinity, or else an instinctual, thonic one, like the triadic nature of the gods of the underworld, the lower triad. Psychologically, however, three, if the context indicates that it refers to the self, should be understood as a defective quaternity or as a stepping stone towards it. Empirically, a triad has a trinity opposed to it as its complement. The complement of quaternity is unity. From the circle and quaternity motif is derived the symbol of the geometrically formed crystal and the wonder-working stone. From here, analogy formation leads on to the city, castle, church, house, and vessel. Another variant is the wheel, rota. The former motif emphasizes the ego's containment in the greater dimension of the self. The latter emphasizes the rotation, which also appears as ritual circumambulation. Psychologically, it denotes concentration on and preoccupation with a center, conceived as the center of a circle and thus formulated as a point. This leads easily enough to a relationship to the heavenly pole and the starry bowl of heaven rotating around it. A parallel is the horoscope as the wheel of birth. The image of the city, house, and vessel brings us to their content, the inhabitant of the city or house, and the water contained in the vessel. The inhabitant, in his turn, has a relationship to the quaternity and to the fifth as the unity of the four. The water appears in modern dreams and visions as a blue expanse reflecting the sky, as a lake, as four rivers, e.g. Switzerland as the heart of Europe with the Rhine, Ticino, Rhone, and Inn, or the Garden of Eden with the Gihon, Pisan, Hidekel, and Euphrates, as healing water and consecrated water, etc., Sometimes the water is associated with fire, or even combined with it as fire water, wine, alcohol. The inhabitant of the quadratic space leads to the human figure. Apart from the geometrical and arithmetical symbols, this is the commonest symbol of the self. It is either a god or a godlike human being, a prince, a priest, a great man, a historical personality a dearly loved father, an admired example, the successful elder brother. In short, a figure that transcends the ego personality of the dreamer. There are corresponding feminine figures in a woman's psychology. End quote. Okay. So, I think these couple paragraphs 
present something that is deeply profound, particularly in the way that he traces from the most abstract number symbolism to the most familiar human form, starting out with uh, talking about quaternity and mandala-type images, lattice structures into crystals, right, and then into cities, houses, castles, to a cup, and then to what they contain of rivers and water and fire and and godlike human beings, human forms, heroes, fathers, down to the individual human being. Now, I don't want any of this to sound like I am trivializing anyone's experience. I think everyone's experience is equally valid, and we can only take people at their word as to what they see in an NDE or even in a dream. And so this is not to try to boil it down to, oh, this is just psychology or something. No, it's, it's, it's finding the tools that we can use to better understand ourselves and interact with something that goes beyond us. That is, who knows the limits to it? We have such a bias towards <laughs> inner experience in our culture because it's so squirrely and hard to deal with, like all the new age stuff and, you know, chakras and chi and all this stuff. It, it, we don't have a way of measuring it. But by looking at these symbols and their common meanings, we have something that we can use to deal with this really squishy, subjective stuff. But this subjective stuff is going to be real when each of us experiences it in our own way. Because eventually, we will or we won't. And who's to say what that will be? But the least we can do in the meantime is try to understand it. For our own sake and for the sake of, of people who have had experiences that don't understand them, like Melanie. And why her soul took the form of a crystal, her essence. And I hope that all of this has at least shed a little bit of light on that. That the image of the crystal for mankind has often represented something divine within us. And as we know, that image, that form, can change. But the meaning behind it stays the same. And I want to just read through, just real quick, the list of associations that we have gathered together throughout this episode, okay? So, the crystal is associated with illumination, divine mythic figures, heaven, spiritual fulfillment, enlightenment, the philosopher's stone, eternality, eternal life, immortality, 
indestructibility, absolute knowledge, and healing. So, all of those things that I just listed, we have seen aspects of in near-death experiences. So perhaps there is something true about them, although we will only be able to find out on our own. I think that's as close as we can get. So in the meantime, I just hope that this is useful, that we can see things that Perhaps we don't understand within ourselves with a little more clarity. Things out in the world as well. Like, why we give a diamond ring (laughs) to get married. Thank you very much for listening today. I hope this was interesting. We will be finishing off Melanie's near-death experience with the next episode. And looking at this... Oh, strange appearance of a window, which I think will be very fascinating to get into. But if you want to reach out to me, you can do so at samreadsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Uh, check out the Facebook page. Uh, we're on Spotify, YouTube. Please leave a five-star review on iTunes. If you enjoy the show, if you get something out of it, Please check out my new website, voicemailheartstrings.com. If it sounds like something that would be up your alley, please send me an email, and I would love to turn one of your voicemails into a piece of music. And speaking of which, instead of a quote on death, we will be ending with a recording of a folk song. So, as I mentioned in one of the previous episodes, in which we ended with a recording, I have been greatly enjoying the, uh, I guess, archive of Alan Lomax, who was an ethnomusicologist who went around the world and gathered together old folk songs from, you know, all sorts of different people. And we shared one a couple episodes ago that was a Scottish lament ballad. And I found one that I thought would be perfect for ending this particular episode. It's a song called Diamond Joe. And I've been doing a lot of research on it. It seems to be quite old. There was a version going around that was from about 1936. The version that I'm going to be sharing here at the end is, was recorded in 1961 by a woman named Bessie Jones, who was... Uh, a musician, and she traveled around with a band. And this was recorded in New York City by Alan Lomax and was released. But this song has been very difficult to pin down on its origins. There are three different versions, one of which has to do with a mean cattle rancher who (laughs) wore diamonds. But this version is more spiritual, more longing. The lyrics, as you'll hear, are Diamond Joe, come and get me. And there are a couple different theories as to who this Diamond Joe was. One of which I kind of mentioned before was this, uh, I guess, uh, very rich cattle rancher, cowboy type character. And there was mythology sort of spawned around him, I suppose. 
But the, the other competing theory was that there was a guy named Joe Reynolds, Joseph Reynolds, and his, he lived from 1819 to uh, 1891, and he had a steamboat line that ran on the Mississippi River. It was called the Diamond Joe Line. So it could be a mythical sort of rich figure or a, a boat to take somebody home. I think both of those work with the symbolism of the crystal that we have discussed. The inner friend that's there when you need a hand or the vehicle to take you home. So either way, this is beautifully sung and I feel every single note and I hope you enjoy it. This is Diamond Joe. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe. A bridge is torn, I got no patch. Diamond Joe, you better come at me. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe. I'm out of door, I got no clothes. Wanna go home, but I can't go. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe, Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe, I'm down here on that hall. Diamond Joe, you better come on. Diamond Joe, you better come and get me. Diamond Joe.